mama told my uncle he gonna end up on a shit. And we're hanging out in the neighborhood, and all of a sudden, tires screeching. Bullets just flying. And you're like, what was that? Of course, it's a big commotion. We just all migrated over to the corner. And they said, hey, a rival gang, Crips just came by, shot up the neighborhood. Y'all have got to start handling business and stepping your game up, retaliating. Now, now they're telling us this at 12. This is The Deep End with LaCroix. God and guns, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think people, because I've grown, I can articulate myself pretty well. They find it hard to imagine my upbringing. They find it hard to imagine some of the things that I've experienced and some of the things that I've encountered. But you have to realize um, that I have had to live in so many different areas. I've learned to be a chameleon. I've learned to navigate different spaces when you go to multiple schools and you know live in multiple environments you learn to navigate to fit in it's one of the reasons why this big picture of tupac is behind me because i so relate to him because he was so many things um and he he died at 25 but he went to a performing arts school as did i he grew up in a disenfranchised environment as did i heavily influenced by gangs so was i love poetry and articulating himself as do i very intelligent love acting i think i love acting as well and you know i like i just see so much of myself in him so it's not as if i'm trying to like lionize him or make him greater than anything else it's just there's so much relatability you know i remember growing up i remember i was probably about i don't know seven and um one of my family members, uh, who was a gang member, took me on a ride. We're in Southern California, and he shows me my first gun. And he was so excited about it. He had to be, I don't know, maybe 20, maybe 19. And he was so excited about it, and he's showing it to me. And I'm like, wow, you know, a seven-year-old, you've only seen this on television. And I'm not thinking, like, I don't have the categories or capacity to think this is abnormal or this is not what every other seven-year-old is experiencing because this is just my reality. So I think the infatuation started there, right? Like outside of rap videos and so on and so forth, just seeing it up close and personal and seeing this family member have it was like, whoa, that's cool. Um, He was one of the only men that paid attention to me. You know, I mean, I didn't grow up with my dad. My dad... uh you know, was battling his addiction and he had other issues as well. And so I didn't grow up with him, but even in reconnecting with him, I was telling him about this particular family member. And he was like, he wasn't a gangster. I was a gangster. I was a part of the Compton Crips. So you, th there's just this trajectory and this history um, that I'm growing up, up under. And so that was my first experience with a gun, was, was seeing this family member like let me see this, this actual gun in person. All right, so this thing right here is an album. I know it. you may not know what an album is. It's like a thing that plays records. A record 
in order to listen to it you have to flip it over to hear both sides of it now generally the a side of the record is all the commercial hits all the stuff that everybody knows the b side is like the deep cuts the stuff that most people don't get to hear the stuff that's like whoa i wanted to be successful to escape dysfunction mm. so so when i'm talking to somebody i'm coming as the most authentic form of myself as possible now i ain't for everybody which is why god has so many disciples because everybody ain't for everybody there's a b-side to our worlds to our lives that most people don't get access to that most people don't talk about but we want to do that and that's what the B-Side app is. The B-Side is a safe place to talk about the things that, you know, are on the other side of the record. Download the app and join the family. See you on the B-Side. You know, just within the neighborhood, people talked about it. People talked about shootings. People talked about killings. And, um, and maybe about a year later, uh, the first person I knew was murdered. And uh, this was my aunt's boyfriend, Philip, And um, that disturbed me. He was murdered in a drive-by, a, a shooting. And this is somebody who came around and played with me and talked to me. And, you know, it was, it was a gang-affiliated um, uh, killing as far as I remember, if I remember correctly. You know, I was so young. But I remember being about maybe eight, and just seeing the collection of obituaries in my relative's room just stack up because so many people were getting killed. And around 12, um, it came to my doorstep even more, right? And obviously, I, I've just seen someone has just been murdered, but then it comes to my doorstep even more when... You know, we're hanging out in the in the neighborhood and we're hanging out in the neighborhood and all of a sudden you hear tires screeching. Bow, 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 bow. Bullets just flying. Bow, bow, bow. And you're like, what was that? You know, like, what the heck is going on? So, of course, it's a big commotion. Um you're you're 12 you know what it is but you don't but this is like it's up close and personal now and i remember a lot of my friends and i we were playing football in the street and we just all waited a second and we kind of migrated over to the corner and on the street corner were some older gang members right we're 12 13 but these guys are 17 19 and um I was not a part of this gang in terms of being jumped in, but I was, all the friends in my neighborhood were a part of this gang. So it was just something that I felt connected to. And they said, hey, uh, a rival gang, the Crips just came by and shot up the neighborhood. Y'all have got to start handling business and stepping your game up and retaliating. Now, now, they're telling us this at 12. One of the reasons why you told 12 and 13-year-olds this is because we could not be incriminated or charged as adults if we were to be caught for, you know, uh, uh, attempted murder or, you know, anything of the like. And so it, 
it hit me, first of all, that they were challenging us. Well, first of all, I, I'm not going to lie to you. I felt, you're talking about a kid who didn't grow up with a dad. No one ever said, good job, son. No one ever came to a basketball game, a football game. No one ever patted me on my back and said, I'm so proud of you, or this is what you need to do better, or this is what it means to be a man. No one ever showed me how to fix a car engine. No one ever showed me how to talk to a girl. None of these things outside of kind of some teenage relatives that I had who were a little bit older than me. And so to hear these young men tell me it's time to be a man, it felt like I can't, I can't describe the ecstasy, the sense of um, validation that rose up in me because somebody thought I was capable of something. Because somebody thought like, this is a rite of passage, it's time to be a man. And that just endeared me, made me feel like, what, me, us? Now, I'm also a kid who was raised by a very brilliant mom and some incredible aunts who were educated. The, the women in my family are the hands down the matriarchs. I can't think of many patriarchs in my family. I can't really think of many. But these matriarchs were telling me, you're brilliant, you're smart, you can read, you can do this, you can do anything. And I heard their voices in the back of my head as these older gang members said, it's time for y'all to start shooting back. They handed us a gun. This was our collective gun, just me and my three buddies. And they said, when they come around, it's time for y'all to, to fight back. Now, we are plotting on who gets the gun, who keeps the gun. We're kids. You know, we're figuring out where does this go? We decide to put it up in a tree so no one would know where it was. And we were like, it's all of ours. We're going to keep it in the tree. And if somebody comes, we can climb up in the tree, grab it out of the, the little place we hid it and fire back. I am so conflicted because here's my friends. This is all they've ever known. They don't have an aunt who went off to college and moved to Tokyo and is teaching English and sends them postcards telling them the world is bigger than this neighborhood. They don't have a mother who worked really hard as a single mom, fought her way through the system, got educated and became a social worker who's telling me this is where you end up when you go down this path. I'm the one who has that. Now, we all are fatherless. We all are struggling, living in a disenfranchised community. We're all endeared toward gangs and violence. But I'm the one who God had blessed with this, this group of amazing women who said, no, 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 no. There's something special. There's like a call on your life. And that made all the difference. I remember thinking to myself, I can't be a part of this. That gun in that tree is y'all's gun. And, and I, I didn't tell them this, but internally I knew this is getting too far. I'm not even mad at these people. No one got killed. I'm not even upset. This is going too far. Um, and I think there was a resolve made in me that day. A resolve made in me that at 12 years old that I don't know how far to the edge I'm willing to go. And I'm not going to lie to you, as an adult, that haunted me because my identity was so wrapped up in what those men thought of me, I felt as if I never achieved manhood for a very long time because I didn't go through with that rite of passage that should have been you know, who I am. But man, isn't that, isn't that who God ultimately uses? Like, Isn't that generally where God does his best work? It's not the oldest son that that 
you know, uh, Samuel's looking for. He comes to Jesse and says, I, someone's going to be anointed as king. It's not the oldest son. It's not the second. It's not the third. He goes down the list. He's like, well, I don't have any more sons. Oh, yeah, I got David. But he's out in the field with the sheep. Like, clearly it's not him. No, that's the one. That's the one. The one who did not live up to the expectation of the culture, the expectation that what it meant to be a man is the one that God says, no, this is the one I'm going to use. And I ended up being that one. I go back to that neighborhood now and those men that I looked up to, they have so much respect for me because of what I've accomplished and how much transformation I brought. They text me messages about how much the music is impacting their lives and not because I went down the same route, because I took a completely different route. I, I, you know, I took the path that, that God laid out for me. And I think that made all the difference. And that's just, that's one gun story I could tell you. There's, there's a ton of them. I could tell you about me becoming 14 and holding a gun up to a car as a joke. You know, I could tell you about being 17 and there's shootouts at this party that I, I left that left a young man uh, impaired. Um, I can tell you about living in Memphis and, you know, guys on this basketball team that I was around every day you know, who I never would have imagined would be, have the, the, the gall to kill somebody walking into the school building and, and or not school building, but walking into a party and murdering somebody point blank range. And I'm like, I know you, you know, so there's tons of those realities that unfortunately exist, but man, I don't, I can't tell you why I'm here other than God. I can't tell you other than God had a calling on me. I grew up in hip hop. Hip hop is is a, a craft and an art form that began in the late 70s um, or mid, early 70s. I wasn't around, but but it what it was was a reflection of people's lives and what they were experiencing. And during the 80s, you know, when the war on drugs came about, a lot of men went to prison or became addicts in, in disenfranchised communities. Because of a lack of a father, and that's how God has designed us. We were designed, he calls himself the father. Like father's an important role. Otherwise he wouldn't call himself the father. We know that, you know, God is not a male in terms of what we would think of a male. Right? But he personifies himself as father for a reason because that role is so significant. Right, He personifies himself as a lot of different things. You know, the lion or an eagle, lots of things. But he consistently, Jesus calls God the father. And that's not happenstance. It's not just a language choice. You don't just throw that out there and say, well, I mean, you know, technically he's not a man like we're men. So... But he, but he does that intentionally because father's so significant. And now you got this group of individuals who are growing up without a father. I was one of them. Where the war on drugs either took your dad away because he was trying, he couldn't find work and he began to sell drugs because at that point in time, no one knew it was this heinous of a crime and that it was going to terrorize communities or you became a, a, an addict. And so now you've got this void of present fathers during this period of time. And so 
you know, hip hop is the voice of a lot of these individuals. And where do these individuals begin to run to, to look for that sense of identity, that sense of belonging, that rite of passage? It's some men in their community. And generally those men are, are unfathered as well. And so gangs begin to form. If you look at every culture around the world, there's generally a rite of passage. Jewish culture, there's a bar mitzvah. You become a man at your bar mitzvah. In Kenya, the Maasai warriors, they go out and kill a lion collectively. You come back after killing a lion, you are a man, sir. In America, we have nothing. Generally, our rites of passage are like pretty self-destructive, right? How many beers did you drink? Did you have sex? Did you lose your virginity? Like it, it's, they're not generally healthy things. And so we begin to form a sense of our value and our worth as what it means to be a man from these, you know, cultures that have been created with a void. And that's just not the way God designed it. We, we're all, a lot of us, young men, I was one of them, are looking for what it means to even be a man. Like if you ask a man today, what is a man? What does it mean to be a man? You're going to get a million different answers because no one's really sure. Uh, he protects. Uh, he makes money. Uh, he has male genitalia. There's just a mil like, and, and as culture just begins to get more and more fluid, people are like, oh, we don't, what do we need these binaries for? Well, we, we have binaries because God has binaries. God said, let there be night, let there be day. Let there be land, let there be sea. Let there be animals, male and female. Let there be man. Oh, what's the counterpart? Woman. Like we do a disservice to God creating these binaries and we say, we don't like those. We don't like binaries. God designed it that way. He, he, he said, it's not good for man to be alone. He created woman. We know that God has a, a plan for, you know, gender binaries because he says it. But then if you start looking in the scripture, what the heck is a man? Well, we, well, let's look at the first one. Let's look at Adam. Adam was passive, right? Eve eats the fruit. Adam's like, shoot, the woman you gave me, God did that. I don't know what's going on there. He was passive. Adam, you know, he, he shifted the blame. He was a blame shifter. He did not take ownership. He didn't accept responsibility. So he's passive. He's not accepting responsibility. We're looking at someone who is supposed to be the quintessential man. Like God said, you're a man. Well, what are you doing? Well, he's passive, a blame shifter, not accepting responsibility. And they call him the first Adam. But then the Bible goes in and says there's a second Adam. And that's Jesus. And what is Jesus? Jesus is, he is not passive. He accepts responsibility. He is selfless. He is caring. He loves his bride, the church. And so what is a man? Well, the ultimate man is Jesus, obviously. So you want to know what it means to be a man? How much does your life line up with Jesus's life? That's what it means to be a man. But we've gotten so far away from that, we've created our own definition of what it means to be a man. So depending on what culture you're from, generally speaking, it's bravado, it's violence, it's, it's toughness. 
that becomes the definition we have for being a man. And when men can't live up to that, they're seen as less than. So what happens if you go to prison and you get beat up? Well, you're not a man anymore, right? What happens if you are, you know, same-sex attracted? Oh, you're not a man anymore, right? There's so many things that, no, if Jesus is the benchmark, are you following the benchmark of what it means to be a man? And that's the void we see in society and culture. That's the void I saw growing up. I didn't know what it meant to be a man. So I followed the only men that would pay me any attention. And unfortunately, they were going down a dark path themselves. Regardless of your background, regardless of the culture you come from, if your sense of identity is not built around who God says you are, you're going to be off track. If I draw a straight line, and I say, hey, this line goes from point A to point B. Point B is looking just like God. Point A is where you are. Straight line. If I deviate just a tinge, it's going to be way off at the end. So if we remove God from the picture, if we remove him as the standard of where your worth, your identity, and your value comes from, now you're just creating it as you move along. You, you've got a moving finish line. The field goal just keeps moving to different places. And that's what we keep seeing happen in society, right? It, it wasn't always the pursuit of, of wealth. Like once upon a time in, in ancient Near Eastern culture, it wasn't your wealth that gave you identity. It was how many kids you had, right? How big is your family? And so that was the benchmark of like success and the mark of identity is if you could not have a firstborn, you were trash, right? Throughout history, the field goal changes when God is not at the center of our worth and our identity. So as a man, I mean, as a woman, as anybody, if you base your identity on your talent, your, your treasures, you're setting yourself up for failure. Because what are you in your neighborhood? Let's say you live in, I don't know, Ypsilanti, Michigan, and you are the complete best, best of the best actor in Ypsilanti. No one has ever seen anyone like you in the school plays. Matter of fact, you made it to the Ypsilanti Town Hall Theater. You are the best. Well, now your identity is wrapped up in you being the best, but guess what? That identity that, that is, you found yourself wrapped up in is going to say, hey, I'm the best. And then you're going to go to New York because you're the best. I'm going out here to Broadway. What you're going to find out is there's somebody on the subway who can outact you. There's a performer on the side of the street who's better than you. You are the best thing in Ypsilanti. And now the sidewalk performer is destroying you. What's going to happen to your identity, your worth, your value? It's going to diminish, right? And so you're, we're always comparing ourselves to someone else. What is power? What is wealth if there's no one else to compare yourself to, right? If there's no one to rule over, what is power? If there's no one to compare yourself to, if there's nothing, no one poorer than you, what is wealth? When you compare yourself to God, you, you don't measure up. And so now if we if we only see our value as something that is being given, received, not achieved, we can have a true sense of self-worth. We can have a true sense of belonging, a true sense of, of hope, right? Like I, I've just, I've lived this. So I'm, I'm speaking it like 
so matter-of-factly, but it's been my life. Right? I, I grew up wanting to be the toughest guy. And I realized I'm, I'm just not a tough guy like that. I'll stand up for myself. I'll defend myself. But I don't wake up like, I just can't wait to beat somebody down. I just realized oh, I'm not this guy. Right? So, so then it was like, well, shoot, what's my thing? Because I can't, I don't have any value in this ecosystem I live in without being tough. Then I found out, you know, I could rap. And we had these ciphers and these little rap battles at lunch. And I was always killing it. It was the man. And so now I'm like, well, yeah, I'm the man. I got to I gotta keep pushing this and pursuing this. I find Jesus and it's like, shoot, now I'm really the man because I'm playing in this smaller pool of Christians rapping. So it's like, oh, shoot, the competition is scarce over here. I'm killing it. Well, then what happens is I become premier in my league <laughs> my Christian rap league, I become premier and the mainstream starts looking at me and I'm like, well, shoot, I got to get over there. And I remember the moment, you know, being nominated for a rap Grammy. It's me, it's Drake, it's Kendrick, it's Childish Gambino. It may have been Eminem in that category. I mean, I'm going up against the greatest of greats and I lose. Now, I was healthy and wise enough to realize my identity was in the wrong thing in the first place. So I, I felt bad for not winning, but I felt worse because I knew I should not have wanted to be seen as valuable because I won that. And that's a lot of us. We're just looking for our value and what we can achieve and not what's already been received. But that's, that's a part of the process is being able to look your, your struggles in the face. The Christian life is not about a life that has no struggles. The Christian life is a life that knows how to fight well, right? It's, it's not that it's, you're not going to get tired. You're going to get tired. It's just, you're going to know, you're going to know yourself and you're going to know, okay, it's time for me to stop. It's time for me to slow down. It's time for me to get some water because if I keep running, I'm going to fall. And that's, that's, the, that's the journey that we're on. When Egypt freed the slaves, there was a plague. Uh, firstborn died. They put the blood over their doors and they got up out of there. The sea parted and all of a sudden they were free. They're free. Took them 40 years of wandering around the desert to truly be free. It took them one moment to get out of Egypt. It took them 40 years to get Egypt out of them. It doesn't, it just doesn't click. And I, I, I struggle with that for a lot of us Christians because a lot of us just feel like as soon as we meet Jesus, bow, as if there's not a process, as if God doesn't have, the Bible consistently talks about the process of sanctification. It consistently talks about purging us. It consistently talks about refining us. There's a refining process and you're going to have to go through the desert. And so, yeah, I'm still, I'm, you're, you're, you're going to constantly walk through the desert. You're going to constantly be growing. Now, how long do you want to stay in the desert? It depends on you. Are you going to learn and, and be changed and transformed? Or are you going to keep repeating the same cycles over and over again? Well, you're going to be wandering for a long time. 
Do you want to get to the proverbial promised land? I mean, even when you get there, problems are still going to come, just so you know that. But the point is, yes, I still struggle with wanting to be perceived in a particular way. Some stuff I can't help. I still size people up everywhere I go. I still size them up to see, okay, if I have to fight him, can I win? Okay, what would I do? Why? Why? I haven't been in a fight since... Probably 20 years, right? So why am I sizing people up? Why is that my mindset? I'm constantly like having to realign my perspective of, yo, I don't have to be perceived as as a tough guy. I don't. Like Jesus was never seen as a tough guy. Peter goes to cut off an ear. He sucked at it. Because he really wasn't aiming for the ear. You don't aim at cutting off an ear. You aim at the face. You're trying to cut the neck. The He couldn't even get, he didn't even know what he was doing with that. But he had heart. I give Peter that. He had heart. And Jesus is like, no, that's not how. Listen, if you live by the gun, you're going to die by the gun. And that's just true in everything. Like, like if you, what you pursue is going to either give you life or kill you. Right? It's, it's Cain and Abel. What, what you, when, when God said sin is crouching at your door, he's not saying that like, you know, Abel, you out here, uh, or Cain, you're out here doing too much drinking and drugging. He's saying, nah, man, your heart's propensity toward this evil is going to devour you. And that's what sin does. When you think you don't have a struggle, you are going to get devoured. That's when it's coming for you. When you think I'm good, no, that's when you're bad. When you, when you don't realize, yeah, when you don't see your <laughs> desire for a new pair of shoes as materialism, when you don't see that eighth look in the mirror as vanity or insecurity, you're in trouble. You're in trouble because you don't recognize that sin is crouching at your door waiting to devour you. And so whatever you're pursuing in that capacity is going to be detrimental. But the good, the good news is that, man, God has given us warning. That's what he did to Cain. Cain, I'm coming to warn you. He said, where are you? He didn't. He's not like when God is asking you questions, he's not trying to gain information. He's he's. He's questioning you so you can ask questions about yourself. And so I have to ask questions about myself. Why do I need to be perceived as tough? Jesus wasn't tough. I mean, not in the traditional sense. He was tough because I don't know if I could get beat with multiple cat of nine tails, strung up on a cross, nails plugged into my wrist, die by asphyxiation from pulling myself up and down, then being stabbed in the side with a spear. I don't know if I can deal with that. Just saying. You try to take my fingernail off, I'm giving you all the information. I'm just going to tell you straight up. I'm confessing. Whatever. I'm giving it up. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They live over there. <laughs> the, the point I'm, I'm just making is this. We're not what society says we are. We're who God says we are. And we're always going to struggle to find our value when we look for it existentially, when we look for it outside of God. We're always going to struggle with that. And we're always going to struggle with sin crouching at our door. But God is good and he warns us. He doesn't chastise Cain. He doesn't say, hey, stupid. 
<laughs> he's like, I love you. You have blown it, but I love you. And I'm here to help you in this process. And God is doing that in my life every day. He's reminding me, you don't, this is unnecessary. You don't need to be seen as this or that. There's been seasons of inferiority in my life um, where I guess it just depended on what I was chasing, right? Because a lot of it is contingent upon what you value, what you're after, and what you think makes you whole or complete. Um, and so, you know, I remember early promiscuous seasons of my life where it was like, do I satisfy women in the bedroom? You know, like that was a big thing. Like, oh, shoot. Um, another at that point in time was like, you know, do as many girls like me as my friend over here. Um, and just that constant comparison. Um, it can go from you get older and, you know, you start imposing your desire and your will on your kids. And if your kids can embarrass you, that says it's more about you and less about them, right? Like, so, oh, no, don't do that. You'll embarrass me. And you're centering yourself and finding yourself inferior, insecure because your kids are misbehaving. Even with a spouse, people do that. You know, maybe your spouse has put on extra pounds or, you know, they there's some issues with them and you're insecure because, man, they're, they're not what you thought. Or you look at other couples and you're like, they look so happy and you feel inferior because your relationship is not thriving in that particular way. Um, and I, I've I've gone through a lot of those iterations. I've I've left the rat race. You you would have got me in 2016, feeling inferior to someone more accomplished than me, who had more money than me, because I was aspiring to be there and I wasn't. And so you would f- catch me feeling like, man, I'm less than. I don't even like this. And I would say, I, I know, I, here's a good one. There are certain people on Instagram that I don't follow because it creates envy in my heart. I don't know if I necessarily feel like, I, I dang, you know, why am I not there? But I feel more like this is creating an unhealthy wanting to be there, which will create inferiority because I'm not. And so there's some people I don't follow because they create that burden in me. I'll just tell you one of them. And I think he's great. I, I have no, no hate towards you at all, my brother. I think you are hilarious and you're great. I just can't follow you on Instagram because we're the same age. And I start wanting to be where you are. Except your height, Kevin Hart. I don't want to be as tall as you are. But I, I, want, I, I am so like, I'm grateful for the way God has wired you to go after the things that you've gone after. But then I start to, to look at what you're doing and I start thinking, oh shoot, I need to do that. I gotta do this. I gotta do that. And I gotta do this. And no, I don't. I don't. I I could, but now his goals are becoming my goals. 
And then that's creating stress and burdens in me that don't need to be there. I'm no longer watching you for your comic relief that you offer the world. I'm looking at the moves you're making. I'm looking at the deals you're acquiring. I'm looking at your presence online and I'm thinking, okay, wait a minute. How do I, what do I do? Um, but the beauty, the benefit is for me, I also get close access to people like Kevin Hart. So, you know, one of his best friends is Nick Cannon. I got access. To, I talked to Nick. I've talked to him a million times. We got each other's phone numbers. And I know the realities behind the humans, right? Most people only get the sheen, only get the highlight reel. I get the realities of the lives. And I know like, oh, okay, there's, there's just as much, if not more stress in your life than there is in mine. I, I'm good. Right. So the seven hundred million dollars did not alleviate the worries and the woes and the stress of life. Oh, so Solomon Ecclesiastes is actually right. Dang. Why didn't I just stay in Ecclesiastes? Why did I have to go over here to learn this lesson? Um, so I, I think that's that's something that I've just learned. I've learned the hard way. You know, I've learned the hard way. Uh, hopefully people can learn the easy way. A lot of people think if I could just get on the other side, if I can just you know, we always hear people say, you know, man, it's not worth it. You know, don't chase the fame. They're like, just let me be famous one time. I just want to see for myself. Why? Everyone keeps telling you it's not the grass isn't greener over there, but I just need to see. It's like, why? When I, when I watch, like, I used to see rappers. There'd be these, like, Instagram vixens that would, like, always terrorize them. Like, they would they would film them while they were asleep and catch them cheating and stuff. And I'll be like, why do rappers keep messing with the same girl? It's like they keep saying, I, I, I just want to see for myself. I'm like, why? We've seen this story over and over again. Why do you want the ring, Frodo? You see what happens to everyone who gets the ring. But we just want the precious. If you get what you're chasing, um, what then? Right? We always imagine, if I can just get here... Because a lot of things you were chasing historically, you got. You just don't even realize it, right? Like some of you were like, when you were kids, you're like, man, I can't wait till I grow up. And then you grew up. How's that going for you, right? How's adulting going for you? How many of you wish you could? I wish I could go back <laughs> to eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and going to the playground. Um you know, you wanted to graduate, man, as soon as I get out of school, man, oh, you got out. Is life less stressful? Is it easier now? Is it so much better? Is it everything you ever dreamed? You said, oh, man, if I can just find the right spouse, the divorce rate is at 50%. So so those those people out there who didn't get divorced, they just found the right one right. They're not struggling trying to keep it together. They're not intentionally fighting. They're just living in bliss every day. I promise you that's not the case. I promise you no matter what it is that you think will take you to the place where you will feel less inferior, less stressed, less bothered, does not exist under the sun. The word utopia literally means no place. It does not exist here. 
So everything we're looking for to fill that void is not on planet Earth. The hope we have is that there's a God who does have a utopia, a heaven, a paradise, and he's willing to allow us to join him there. And for a little while here, we will see dark days, but they won't all be dark, right? I um, I went to Turkey with my wife and we went to visit Ephesus and they told me you have to see the women weaving on the loom. It's amazing. And we get to this Turkish rug uh, store and the women are on the loom and they're weaving and I I, I was not impressed. I was not blown away. Matter of fact, what I saw was like, eh, it's cool. That's all right. And they said, no, 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 Craig, come to the other side of the loom. So I go to the other side and I see the design that is taking place from this woman's hands. And I'm like, oh. Y'all, right now we're on the side of the loom where it's not impressive. It's not pretty. And we're trying our best to make it beautiful. We're trying our best to make it absolute, the end all be all. It's not. But God is just saying, hey, hang in there because the other side of that loom is incredible. What God is weaving together is going to blow your mind. Hang in there. Start looking at things from God's perspective and things will become way more beautiful. When you remove the veil of all the worldly acclaim and pursuits and you start seeing things from the lens that God wants you to see them through and just being like, oh, shoot, you woke me up. I got life. I got lungs breathing. I got family. I got I got so much opportunity for growth and transformation. The God of the universe loves me. On my worst day, man, you start seeing that beauty being weaved together. It's all about how you're looking at it. My encouragement to you would be look at things through God's lenses. You know, you got to take those glasses off, put these ones on. The world's a lot more beautiful.